These days, so many podcast hosts just riff through unprepared segments until they get to the next ad break for pills they know nothing about, cheap razors, and whatever else they can get a buck from. But the Higher Side Chats does it differently. We succeed or fail on the quality of the content and your desire to hear more of it. So you're about to hear another free first hour episode that's here to prove the two hour shows are worth subscribing for. Five shows a month for just $8. Members get a mobile friendly website, a decade of archives, a dedicated RSS feed for the best podcast apps, and a lot deeper discussion than a single hour can allow for. Sponsor free with more for thee. Get a free seven-day trial of THC Plus at thehiresidechats.com. Enjoy! In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Serenity now, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and if you don't see the interlocking network of secret societies, think tanks, corporate overlords, and Ivy League institutions that truly comprise the capstone cabal, then you probably never will. The Club of Rome, Skull and Bones, Freemasonry, the Bilderbergs, Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, the United Nations, and even the Jekyll Island Insiders have all shown us where power really lies and how the plan goes forward regardless of who you vote for. Well, the latest thread in the big web that everybody is talking about is the World Economic Forum, its almost never-ending list of young global leaders, and its head honcho, Mr. Klaus, you will own nothing and never be happier, Schwab. But what do we really know about the history of this organization and how an Austin Powers supervillain we never heard of until recent years found himself in such an influential position? Luckily, folks, we got the guy who's done the deep dive on exactly this, the great independent investigative journalist Johnny Vedmore, who is not only a top contributor for Whitney Webb's Unlimited Hangout, but he also runs Fungi Monkey Media and provides even more top-tier content on his Rockfin page. His most popular articles still making their rounds around the internet include The Kissinger Conundrum, The Unauthorized History of the World Economic Forum's Young Global Leaders Program, Dr. Klaus Schwab, or How the CFR Taught Me to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, as well as Schwab Family Values. And it is these three and more that comprise the best breakdown of the hidden background of this latest note on the Power Network that I've seen anywhere, and I am psyched to get into it. The unofficial Klaus Schwab biographer, World Economic Forum exposer, and dedicated deep diving journalist, Johnny, my man, welcome to the higher side. Hey, thank you for having me. That is one hell of an introduction. <laughs> Best I've heard yet. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, I appreciate it. And this is a real pleasure, man. I've had Whitney here a few times, and I thought I'd comb through some of the other Unlimited Hangout contributors. And clearly with work like this, you're at the top of the list. It seems so obvious, given how much we hear about the World Economic Forum and Big Daddy Schwab, but yet I don't see anyone else doing this background work. So kudos to you for the strategic journalism. And to kick this off, you have made mention 
in several of these articles that you did have to dig pretty deep because it seems like Klaus has actually gone to great lengths to keep this background private and have his digital footprint kind of scrubbed. Quite ironic, given what he's trying to build for the rest of us. But talk to us about that difficulty and why you're actually pretty well positioned to be the guy to spill the conspiracy. Well, it kind of dates back to one of the first like big articles that I wrote. It was really the second or third article that I wrote. I'd always been into researching, but I didn't actually realize I was a writer until I put it down on paper and then organized it round and made it into a readable piece and put it out there and people actually connected with it. So I started off with a couple of pieces kind of around bias in British politics and etc. But my third piece was on Theresa May, who was just about to be in a, a race for Prime Minister of the UK with Jeremy Corbyn. And I was at this time believing that Corbyn may be able to save things. You know, politics wasn't dead. Maybe this system could be saved. I was still on the bandwagon. I felt like I, I was like half hanging off. I realized it was all a sham. And I still had the belief, though, like lots of people do. And it's innocent. It's an innocent belief. You know, we bundle up all our fears into one entity usually. Here, it was kind of like you have this savior who's come, going to come along and that heroic storyline. And it keeps you, you know, all of the movies you've watched, all of the stories you've grown up with, keep you in this frame of mind where you're like, I'm going to become this. I'm going to see these guys become this savior of the people, you know, mm -hmm. uh, going to go out there and change politics for the good. And then everybody will live happily ever after. And I thought I need to contribute to my part to this. And loads of people were campaigning. There are groups out everywhere, all doing all sorts of things to try and change the balance of power. A lot of it was co-opted, I find out now. At the time, I thought it was all, you know, we're all going to go out and fight in our own ways. So I looked at the history of Theresa May's father. I already liked Ancestry. as already something that I kind of had started off doing with my articles. I looked into the background and I discovered that loads of pages had been wiped. There had been lots of manipulation online. There was archived a version. He wasn't on Wikipedia, but you could find an archived version of her father's page and you could find it on other wiki clone sites that have been made in other languages too. And so I started to be really suspicious about why she wouldn't want her father to be known. And so I kind of went through the history of it and discovered her father worked with a very famous serial killer who's a known serial killer, killed over 130 people as a doctor, Dr. John Bodkin Adams. And this was back in like 1950s. And basically, Theresa May's father had been the chaplain at the hospital in Eastbourne where Dr. John Bodkin Adams was committing these foul crimes. He was getting people to sign them into his well or him, sorry, into their well, mm. and then he was giving them an injection, and they would pass away nicely. Oh. And the clues that there was something there and that something was being covered up led me to the story. And it was the first time I released it independently. I didn't have it at this stage. I was kind of like, I wasn't even looking at other people's work. I was trodding along, hoping that I would, you know, have enough practice over a time that I'd understand what to do myself. And I didn't want to be like everyone else. So I wanted to keep a little bit of my own flavor. I was a musician. So I like to write songs and 
I feel like articles are a lot like it. You have an intro, you have like a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, then you have a middle eight and an outro. And it's very much like an article was. So when I put this article out there about Theresa May's father, I found great interest. It had uh, a quarter of a million views in the matter of like a week. I didn't even have any, that was just all people just sharing it around themselves. I posted it around a couple of tiny Twitter channels I had and on, on Facebook. And I woke up one day and found that it had gone semi-viral. And for a story like that from someone who doesn't write stories, there was lots of really good response. And there was lots of really angry people. It was just before the election. So there was lots of really angry people who were, were supportive of Theresa May and didn't want this information out there. Um, but really, it led on to her. The story was really about her involvement in the child sexual abuse inquiry. Because not only did her father work with a serial killer, alongside a serial killer, he would have been signing the death, the certificates and the like when these people had died. So he would have obviously noticed and there was a cover up. John Bodkin Adams didn't actually get prosecuted for these crimes. They wrote it down for a couple of naughty slap on the wrists for writing erroneous prescriptions. But the actual fact was he had killed loads of people and everybody knew it. He was banned from being a doctor for maybe it was 10, 15 years, and then he was back being a doctor again. He'd been protected by a guy called Lord Gwyn. So there was lots of controversy. And what you find in family history is there's loads of it, and loads of people want to cover things up. So I went through a few of these. I went through a few ancestries, family trees. I went through a woman called Barbara Houston who was really interesting. I went through Bill Gates. I went back in Bill Gates' family history, 700 years, hmm. and ended up with the kings and queens of England, with Geoffrey Gates riding alongside the coffin of Henry VIII and being involved in a coup that gets some of the family's heads chopped off. Um, oh. it's, it's quite astounding that when you look into history, I said to this to someone the other day, it's like someone can have eight children and not all of them will follow their line but one of them will mm -hmm. one of them you know there's always someone who's genetically like the father like the mother if they have enough kids and back then they had enough kids and you keep seeing the same thing happen in the family line throughout history really intriguing stuff so me and whitney were around the coffee table in chile it was maybe end of 2020 and we both couldn't find anything on klaus schwab out there it was the same signs i'd seen over and over so to answer your question the long-winded answer i admit what made me the person to be able to go and do this was that i could see when something was missing where it was missing from and potentially how to find it by using imaginative creative thinking mm, i like it and yeah, when you look at the backgrounds of a lot of these people, they check many of the same boxes, and it does seem like you have a knack for finding those multi-generational elements of the circles of power, and Klaus Schwab is no exception. That is an unexpected entry point, no doubt, and I've heard you talk about this before, that you know, you're not afraid of languages and having things translated and you have lived in certain places that gives you access to certain information, I suppose. But when it comes to Klaus, it is a really crazy background, some, in some ways not unexpected, but he does kind of spring out out of nowhere, yet he is one of the most well-connected people on the planet, 
Take us back to his grandfather, the region they come from, the Schwab roots, all that stuff in terms of ground zero is where, where this research started. Okay, well, I had to go to Swobia, Upa Swobia, which is where the people of Swobia come from, the Schwabs. So, you know, when you're trying to track down a family history that's been disconnected in the archives, so there's, I can't really trace this family history backwards. I have to trace it forwards. That's the best way. And Whitney said, you know, take six weeks of just hunting for all information you can. And basically, I went through every Schwab in Germany, and that's lots of Schwabs <laughs> that I could possibly find. And I worked my way forward in their family lines, and I did it that way. And eventually, it was probably about four weeks in, maybe a little bit more, that I managed to confirm with like three definite pieces of information that Klaus Schwab's father was called Eugen Schwab, and his grandfather was called Jakob Wilhelm Gottfried Schwab. And Jakob Wilhelm Gottfried Schwab is a really interesting guy because he seems to be that he hates Germany. He doesn't really want to hang around in Germany. He gives up his German citizenship at one point and goes and marries a Swiss girl. But when they have a baby, I think he probably realizes something like his the rest of his family is in Germany, so he has to go back. Whatever reasons drive him back, he has to go and reapply for German citizenship. Because he did that, Klaus Schwab later on has been refused Swiss citizenship. And the court document I found that proved that Eugen Schwab and Arika Precht Schwab, Precht was a maiden name, that they were Klaus Schwab's parents, and it names the actual court document names Klaus Schwab, Klaus Martin Schwab, and Urs Reiner Schwab, his brother, in it too, is when his fathers ask him, the Swiss authorities, to have Swiss citizenship back. So his father wanted Swiss citizenship, but his father wanted Swiss citizenship for a different reason than Klaus would want it later. Because his father, this was in the early 50s that he was trying to get Swiss citizenship back, and there was a reason why he had to. He felt like he had to get out of Germany. It didn't prove to be true that he had to get out of Germany. But the times, it had just gone past the war, and he was on the losing side, very much so. So when I went back to Gottfried Schwab, they didn't call him Jakob Wilhelm, mainly because Jakob was too Jewish a name, and the place had, uh, Baden-Württemberg and Uberschwabia had had a history of blood libels against the Jews. Historically, going back to the Middle Ages, there were massacres of Jewish people. And for hundreds of years, Jewish people were banned from the area. If Jewish people were caught, the guards of any town or city would take them to the borders and see them on their way. And a lot of Jewish people who didn't want to be known to be Jewish took up the name Schwab at this time too, which is very interesting. I've got no evidence to say Jakob Wilhelm Gottfried Schwab was one of those, but Gottfried Schwab had his kid move back to Germany and brought up little Eugen Schwab. And Eugen Schwab was very interested. He married twice. Klaus Schwab's mother is the second marriage. The first marriage was to a Jewish lady in the 1920s. Um, and that didn't last long. She got married three times, which is very rare for those days. So she might have been a bit of a good time girl or the like, but uh, 
he basically divorced her in the 20s in the late 20s and then remarried in the mid 30s about 1936 i think he, they officially married klaus schwab was born in 1938 just before the war and at this time eugen schwab is managing a very important factory it's actually the biggest employer in the the town they live in they live in a place called ravensburg uh ravensburg is in the baden württemberg area of germany it's a very elite prestigious area of germany there's a lot of riches there and the town with the main employer was Escher Weiss, which was a factory. It had been set up by Walter Zumpinger, built in the 50s, launched properly in 1860. So 1850s, it was built. 1860s, it was launched. Escher Weiss had two factories, one in Switzerland. It was a Swiss company. And the other one was in Ravensburg in Germany. And Klaus Schwab's father was the managing director of the Ravensburg factory. Now, this is very important because the Ravensburg factory was a Nazi model company by the time Klaus Schwab was born. They used to produce every quarter, I think it is, they used to produce the Nazis, would produce a little book called Nazi Model Companies, and it would highlight some of the most Nazi of all the companies, the best most behaving in the way that Hitler would like. And Eugen Schwab's factory was a Nazi model company. And it was really important to the Nazi war efforts as well. Ravensburg got special dispensation during World War II not to be bombed by the Allies via the Swiss Red Cross, who said they were using the area for humanitarian purposes. In actual fact, what was happening there was slave labor was being used from captured, usually Polish army men and the like, had been transported to Ravensburg, and the Ravensburg plants were producing parts for submarines for the German war effort. They were producing bits for the fighter planes, but most importantly, they were producing massive water turbines. And these water turbines were being sent up to Norway where heavy water was used to enrich uranium as a natural form of enriching uranium for the German Nazi atomic bomb program. So Klaus Schwab's father was very important to the Nazis. Of course, we know the history and we know that that route to atomic warfare or nuclear warfare is the long route. And the Americans uh, and the West were the winners in the end. So by 1950s, Klaus Schwab's father, Eugen Schwab, is very worried. He doesn't necessarily want to be in Germany anymore. And he's asking to get Swiss citizenship back through the courts. And that was the third piece of concrete information. Or concrete, I mean, the other two were, yeah, okay, I found this comment here or this comment there but that was a really important to say okay that's a court document proving that eugen schwab is klaus schwab's father and then the floodgates open once you've worked out the missing link the thing they're hiding everything opens up and you can find more and more things and it's gone from there that is really i mean the first article schwab family values looks at his father but also looks at how Klaus Schwab does something very significant, which is just after he leaves universities, he goes to multiple universities, he actually joins Escher Weiss, the guy Peter Schmidtheiny, who's 
the chairman of Escher Vice, uh, his father was Jakob Smith Heine, Jacob Smith Heine, who was the director when Schwab's father was managing director of the Ravensburg branch. And Peter Schmidt Heine phoned up Klaus Schwab in 1967 and said, You know, you've been to Harvard now. You know all of these business management techniques. Come make the merger with Sulza AG a success. And Escher Weiss were merging with Sulza AG and another couple of companies. And Klaus Schwab would be there, second in command, sorting out the merger. And at the same time, the company would be selling nuclear weapons technology illegally to the South African apartheid regime. So he was doing exactly what his father had done before him try to help a racist regime to be able to gain nuclear weapons mm -hmm. yes that's a great breakdown of the history escher weiss is clearly a very important part of the story because his father and him both worked there so that's where i guess they get a good chunk of their money or a good chunk of their status but going back even further, this is just kind of weird, but we all know the stories that the Nazis seem to have gotten to Argentina, and then to take it up another notch, some say they got to Antarctica and have a base there or mapped out some underground stuff there, and they called it New Schwabenland, and I just find that interesting. I mean, Schwab is a name, as you say, you had to look through many, many people, but it's not New Hitler land, you know, it's New Schwabenland, and I just find that interesting. But since you've lived kind of near the region, do you have any anecdotes about Germans in Argentina or the nearby area to confirm that it seems like a lot of those stories might be true? You, you know, I, I've only lived in Chile for a little bit, but I can tell you there's a hell of a lot of Germans down here. Hmm. Hell of a lot of Germans down here. <laughs> when it comes to Germans are really fantastic people. They're very interesting. A lot of them come from, like, you know, the ancient Vikings and Danish and, and Norwegians. They're the type of people who historically have loved to travel around the place and go as far as they possibly can go. Uh, there's a lot of connections between Germany and everywhere in the world. You'd be really surprised. I mean, we're going to talk about Harvard a little bit later on, and it's one of the examples that if you study any place, you discover that they've got a strong connection with Germans. And that's there's a reason behind that. Germany is, some could say, if you're looking at most of Western Europe, maybe Europe as a whole, Germany is the heart and soul of it. It's the biggest earner. It's the one that does everything a little bit before everybody else. Where Germany goes, the rest of Europe usually follows. The world wars kind of were an example of where people like the German people become too big for their boots on two occasions and think automatically they're almost godlike. Uh, mm. <laughs> and it's easy to believe that when you see that historically you've been much more successful than the countries around you and a lot of them have been adopting your culture. I come from Britain and, you know, we're like, oh, we hate the Germans because of the war. But it's just not so. The Queen's German, you know, yeah, the, the, yeah. the king, or oh, the Queen was German. The King's German. There's this legacy where we decided we don't want Spanish people or French people to rule us. We'd prefer it if it was Germans. <laughs> and lots of nations historically have found the Germans to be quite 
accommodating people, quite nice people. If you're going to be beaten around the head by someone, why shouldn't it be a German? <laughs> yeah, why not? Pick your poison, I guess. But going back over this history, as you mentioned, his grandfather seems to have changed their family name and they seem to have been a Jewish family. And then Klaus's father, Eugen Schwab, heads up this German company, which really becomes a model Nazi company and wins awards saying so, using forced labor and all that. The company is definitely in the upper echelons of the Nazi regime and instrumental for their engineering arm. And you start to wonder, what's really going on here? Because Jews and Germans seem like strange bedfellows, especially at this time. Of course, Henry Kissinger comes into play, another guy who changed his name, I think. And then to get into some of the more modern info, which we'll touch on as we go, but this guy Richard Edelman is the head of Edelman PR, and they're a firm running point for the World Economic Forum's PR. They have worked with Johnson & Johnson, Microsoft, Pfizer, Walmart, GE, all the companies that desperately need a PR firm that we throw a lot of shade at around here. But this is a huge PR firm. They don't need to take on the World Economic Forum as a client. And Edelman is Jewish, of course. That's why it's relevant. So it's just curious. It's a strange network of people that we typically would think of as not very cooperative with each other. Yeah. Maybe it's like Democrats and Republicans. You get high enough up the ladder and there are no morals or convictions, only partnerships for wealth and power. Though... I just thought this was worth a mention. However, it works. I don't really know. But what do you think? I'm about to complete an article. I've been working on it for quite a while now, which is kind of the fourth in this series. And the beginning of it follows the creation of Israel, because it's very important to the story to understand why the story is the way it is. And also the last of the Schwab pieces that I've done so far, the Kissinger Continuum. I was really surprised when you get to the end of the war and you look through history and you discover the CIA in 1947 are getting set up and they're all anti-Zionists, that there's this whole movement of people who are in power in the upper echelons of governments who do not want Zionism to be a thing. They find it abhorrent and they know what it means. It means that there's going to be another holocaust at some point. That's what they believe it means. If you have such a, it's a very extreme ideology that leads one race to believe they're better than the other race if they follow that ideology. Now, over time, you may see lots of people saying, yeah, but it's just you don't have to believe it. It's once there's passion and it becomes a trend that's when things like what happened in the World War happened. And that's what a lot of people fear, I think, about where we're going with Israel. When you look at the history, there's a lot of confusing pieces that don't make any sense until you kind of come to the realization that the Jewish people felt like to survive, they would have to be against the people who they see as their enemy at that time and they had to be fluid. And Zionists in general took that and created a country out of it and created a state out of it. And it's also now a mentality. And it's a time bomb. Lots of people see it as a time bomb. 
now of course there's all of the different definitions you're supposed to be an anti-semite if you're anti-zionist which is like a big leap a big jump it sets us up for something horrible in the future and things go back and forward you know the jewish people zionists being a very small portion of them in general probably i don't know that well enough to but i would assume so but the jewish people know that historically things go up and down especially for them mm -hmm. so a lot of the time they're saying we're in a constant battle for survival so that means we can use any means necessary and that means working with someone who was your enemy a year and a half before <laughs> is no problem whatsoever yeah it is quite strange and people do get hung up on trying to pin the target on one ethnic group or another as to who is the top of the capstone pyramid and i think a lot of times they just think of us all as worthless eaters and it doesn't really matter and some of these people that we want to put the target on they're actually german and jewish mm -hmm. and perhaps you could just say that you know there's a lot of jewish teachings that say well the goy are fine to be exploited they're not going to heaven who cares about them and then a lot of upper echelon germans might be eugenicists who are like well aryans are superior so you take those elite and they're in agreement about 85% of the world being worthless. So you might be able to shake a hand behind the curtain and say, we'll deal with the rest later, but we can definitely agree that we don't like most people and we want to rule the world. And maybe that's how agreements are made, but there's just something odd there. And I think people often miss it trying to focus on, well, is it the Germans or the Jews? It's like, well, most of them are Jews from Germany. So figure that out. But it just comes up in this story. Thought it was interesting. But let's talk about Klaus coming to America, going to Harvard, meeting Henry Kissinger, and the importance of these Harvard summer sessions that are a little more off the radar, it seems. Yeah, well, this summer school was set up in the 1800s, and it was advertised as a way for people who aren't really Harvard graduates to get involved, but also to run sort of programs and projects that might be beneficial for America. And I mean, 150 years ago, these would have been relatively innocent, probably not if you're a Native American or you're, you're the enemy of America right. <laughs> and you're the target of whatever they were doing at that time. But they weren't really targeting who they considered their own people, American people, so much 150 years ago. That changed drastically over the years. Soon, it feels like when you watch Harvard's history, the war, obviously, the Second World War, obviously makes Americans extremely paranoid. The Soviet versus the East versus West paradigm, the fear of nuclear war, of atomic war, that changed who got to be in charge in every part of America, not only in government, but also in universities, in schools across America. The people who were teaching the next generation were teaching them through a prism of usually national intelligence and the fear of what could happen if you don't control people. It had got to that stage where the only way they had discovered that they could get things done quickly in a democracy was subvert democracy by doing things in naughty different ways. So the OSS had been disbanded and formed into the CIA in 1947, over 1948. And they would start in this new 
war that was really against the American people. And for that, they needed to recruit lots of different people. And it's lots of universities. At this point, they've obviously worked out that it's best to concentrate on the younger generation because you get much more of a lifespan out of them. You get their best years if you can train up some of the best youngsters. And there's a few programs in different colleges. So Yale, Princeton, Harvard, of course, and other of the elite universities are running programs which are about getting, after World War II, getting the scholars in, getting people to come and study from Europe, young people from Europe, who they can be given an American mindset and a reason why to love America for when the time comes that they are attempted by the communism that is just over there to their east. And the people in Europe were looking for opportunities at this time. So the young of Europe, if you ask any of the, even nowadays, you ask anyone young in Europe, you want to go and do a course over there, they'll say yes, they'll be happy to do it. Europeans, a peaceful Europe means you can travel lots. And that's what you see happen whenever there's a peaceful Europe is people from all the different countries going and working for a bit in another country. And, you know, I went and lived in France for a little bit. It's really nice to be able to just go across a few hundred miles and feel like, you know, you're in a completely different place. So it's a very interesting and dynamic place. It's really mixed. But there's a problem with that. And the, after World War Two, the Americans were thinking, how do we solve a problem like Europe? You know, how do we solve the European problem? We've got this Soviet menace now advanced as far as East Berlin. We have all of these bordering countries that are going to be susceptible to this propaganda, this communist propaganda that's flooding across the border. And if we don't do anything about it, this very complex and well-built Russian propaganda machine is going to roll all over us. And it was really well built. It would have been in 1919, I think it was, that Comintern was created for the Young Communists International by Willy Munzenberg, who was a German fighting the black shirts and socialists on the streets of Germany back in the day. They had used Lenin's playbook very early on. The communists had propaganda down, so they already had loads of organizations set up to spread propaganda. The West less so. Once World War II ended, suddenly uh, a lot of the West said, we've got to do something about this. We've got to stop this march of communism, um, the threat of nuclear war. If they get too on top of us, then they could just use nukes to finish us off. And then they've won. You know, the fear was there, even in the top establishments just after the war. It died down because they started to investigate that idea a lot. So that's how Kissinger comes around. Kissinger was at Harvard. He had fought in the war and Fritz Kramer at one point. Fritz Kramer was very famous. He was an advisor to a few presidents. He was a famous, he was described as a Nietzschean friar brand and he would wear a monocle and scream at the top of his voice. And he gave Kissinger lots of advice while they fought together during the war. He gave him lots of advice. One was not to think the only way to make good leaders is not to calculate, not not to think, not to calculate. If you calculate, you won't be a good leader. And Henry Kissinger met a lot of these people along the way. And one of the people he met while he went to Harvard after the war was William Yandel Elliott. William Yandel Elliott is an extremely interesting figure, advisor to six presidents. Quiet, but larger than life to those who knew him. 
he was the one who came up with this idea of something called Harvard's International Seminar. It would very soon become called Kissinger's International Seminar, and Kissinger himself would say to Jan Elliott in his letters, you know, we both know that's not true. We both know it's you who did this. <laughs> but William Yandel Elliott, a CFR member, stayed behind the scenes. And a lot of the CFR was watching Kissinger by this point. In 1950, Kissinger had graduated with a record-breaking in length dissertation from Harvard. They were calling him the next big thing. And he wanted to go work for the FBI. And McGeorge Bundy, who was at Harvard, teaching said no 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 we should nominate you for the cfr council on foreign relations and so he went and they were using a modeling to game out and game theory to model should i say a nuclear war at the cfr and so that's what kissinger did he taught at harvard and he went to the cfr so first of all you might get distracted by the fact he was at the cfr and not look at what he was doing at Harvard. Because as soon as he graduated at Harvard, that international seminar was set up, and he was put in charge of it. And it was the most extremely interesting, especially now with what we know, extremely interesting course, because it was really the template of the World Economic Forum's Young Global Leader Program now. So the international seminar, every year in the summer school, they would invite over for free, 50 different students who were nominated by people and who had extremely record-breaking high marks from their international education institute. They had to be foreign, of course, because what they were doing was grooming and aligning themselves with potential young global leaders who they could install into power in countries where they did their little coups. Because the CIA who were funding Kissinger's international seminar via one of their conduits called American Friends of the Middle East, also Farfield Foundation, Asian Foundation, both also named as CIA conduits at the time. The CIA were funding Kissinger's international seminar uh, through this conduit, and this conduit was led by some people who were some of the biggest people in history, Kermit Roosevelt being one, the grandson of Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, one of the founders of the CIA who run and headed up and planned. He was the main planner for the first coups of King Farouk of Egypt in 1952. And then a the year later, John Foster Dulles gives them millions and millions to do the same thing to Mohammed Mossadegh in Iran. Both successful coups, but the problem is, is that once you've couped, you can install whoever you like but they may turn to the Soviets. So they needed to train young global leaders who they, they could put into positions around the world, into positions where they coup, but also into positions of business and politics where it was useful to have these people. Some of the people who went through this program, this CIA-funded program run out of Harvard by Henry Kissinger, or Heinz Kissinger, as his name actually is, he changed it when he moved to America, were... Pierre Trudeau, Justin Trudeau's supposed father, I say that with quotation marks, people <laughs> say, you know, supposed, some say it's Castro. Right. Uh, Giscard, who was president of France, a president of Japan, a prime minister of Israel, and Klaus Schwab was one of them. 
So Klaus Schwab went to Harvard, and there he met some of the most incredible people, people who were doing the same thing as Kissinger, one of them doing the same thing as Kissinger, gaming out nuclear warfare and where it was leading us and the east-west paradigm, the same as the other person he was introduced to. Because, you know, my second article follows his introduction by Kissinger through the international seminar to these two mentors, because these two mentors are really important. They go back to Europe and they get people on board for the creation of the World Economic Forum, which is put into action by the Americans via a CIA conduit-funded course run out of Harvard by Henry Kissinger. Hmm. So these two people, Herman Kahn, described as the real Dr. Strangelove, an amazing character in himself, and John Kenneth Galbraith, an economist, a professor at Harvard as well, one of the most interesting people you could possibly ever research, one of the most dullest people to listen to speak. I mean, John Kenneth Galbraith, he was advisor to a couple of presidents. He wrote speeches as well, really important ones at times. One of the speeches he drafted was the speech that was given after John F. Kennedy was shot. That's a pretty important speech to make. He had been made ambassador to India by Kennedy. In actual fact, he had taught Kennedy at Harvard. He had been the Warburg professor at Harvard of economics. And Joseph Kennedy went there, and a year or two later, John F. Kennedy went and was taught by John Kenneth Galbraith. And John Kenneth Galbraith, he was supposed to study under Keynes, the big guy, the big economist. He was supposed to be studying under him. But Keynes, I think he had a heart attack, or he, he had some form of ill health. And instead, he went and studied land policy under Hitler oh. in Nazi Germany. <laughs> which is like a massive leap. And he met his girlfriend out there, who would be his wife, who lived with Unity Mitford, who was Hitler's girlfriend. So there's a load of really interesting things about John and Kenneth Galbraith, and it doesn't stop all through his life. It seems like he was a man of mystery. After the war, he was sent to Europe and he said that he was going over there to statistically analyze the damage and the rebuilding effort needed in Europe. And the first thing he did when he landed was taken to Albert Speer, who was the Nazi head of armament, war and armament, so like the head guy of World War II, Hitler's World War II machine. And he was sent to him to interrogate the boss, like the top guy who was responsible for almost everything. Unbelievable history, really interesting. And Herman Kahn is possibly even more interesting. He was working at the Hudson Institute, funded a lot by the Rand Corporation. He had very interesting views on liberty. If you watch videos of him on YouTube, you can find videos of him on YouTube. Like you put in Herman Kahn and it's like, one of the first two, he's talking with Anthony J. Weiner, who was also at the Hudson Institute, 
and they're talking about oh maybe we should just slip some stuff in the water supply if people get a little bit too revolutionary yeah we'll just put some stuff in the water supply Oof. how about we dull it down a bit make them a bit calm and those blacks we got to sort out those blacks because those blacks are a problem there's a lot of that sort of stuff that goes on with Herman Kahn but he's also one of the greatest thinkers in human history he uses all sorts of modeling game theory and other things early computer modeling to come up with theories about nuclear war that led to on thermonuclear war in 1961 so Kissinger working in the CFR had written nuclear war and foreign policy by 1957-1958 that got published and he had become the expert on nuclear war Herman Kahn 1961 would give people the idea of mutually assured destruction being like almost a safety net that means people won't fire nuclear weapons at each other Kissinger did something different Kissinger gave people the idea that limited warfare was the best way to go forward that war that was perpetual ongoing never ends there's no winner no loser <laughs> that's the only way and a lot of the signaling at this time, if you look at news articles at the time, a lot of the signaling is Kissinger's guys saying they're trying to say to Russia directly, we don't want to use big bombs, but we're willing to use little nukes against each other if you want. <laughs> you know, the people in power openly saying the only way out of nuclear holocaust is by only having little nuclear wars, but constantly at each other's throats, but never is there a win. And you see what Kissinger was involved in afterwards his part in Vietnam and advising Nixon you could be sure that limited war where there was no winner at the end was going to be a thing of the future and it's what we've seen right really interesting time in history and these people had kind of come together Herman Kahn was working for the White House he was working for the State Department between 1966 and 1968 and this is when Klaus Schwab is going to be introduced to him. So Klaus Schwab goes to Harvard. His father in 1964 says, Klaus, you've got to, if you want to be a success, if you want to be a success, my son, you've got to go to Harvard. You've got to study with the best. And he took his dad's advice. He applied for the international seminar and obviously got in. He says, they kindly let me sit in to Kissinger's international seminar, which was very nice of them. But people didn't have to pay. If you were selected to go to Kissinger's international seminar, it means you were a top dog. And he was already a top dog. He had loads of degrees, but then a few honorary degrees had already been given to him, and he was relatively young. So he went to Kissinger's international seminar with the ability, uh, knowing that he was going to be around some big folk and a big folk he was he was introduced to Herman Kahn who was working at the State Department and Herman Kahn was writing two pieces of work for the Hudson Institute for the State Department at the Hudson Institute for the State Department one of them was called the year 2000 which predicted almost all the technology that we'll see in the near future and the other one was an ancillary document a secretive document that covered the leadership groups and how they should be educated separately from society and how universities should be dulled down so that the people who go to normal universities will be good for administrators and managers who will work underneath the people who will be again like i say 
educated separately outside of society <laughs> and that is in essence what the young global leader program is what harvard's international seminar was and kissinger wouldn't get involved in the setup of what was the World Economic Forum originally called the European Management Symposium, two years later would be called the European Management Forum. Kissinger wasn't involved in the creation of that. He was involved in getting Galbraith and Kahn to go across with Schwab to Europe to get people on board for the idea. So I think it probably about 1970 that they were there trying to encourage other people to get on board, with, along with Otto von Habsburg. And Otto von Habsburg became the joint first keynote speaker alongside John Kenneth Galbraith of the first Davos that took place in 1971. And had been created through this CIA-funded course run by Henry Kissinger, and it had a really successful first year, the second year less so, but the third year they perked everything up. They decided to go Malfusion, and basically they Aurelio Pecci in the Club of Rome had just released Limits to Growth in 1972, which was basically saying that human population needs to be reduced drastically, a depopulation effort needs to happen, and needs to be done under the guise of environmentalism and Aurelio Pecci would be invited to speak as a keynote speaker for Davos and it would bring in a big crowd and would get it back on the road again. Davos was a success again and it was done with the help of this controversy and in the controversy what came out of that was Herman Kahn who rejected everything that the Club of Rome had to say suddenly got really positive about humanity's outlook and wrote a piece that was finished by 1974, I think, which was called The Next 200 Years and was a follow-up to the year 2000, hmm. which said that in the next 200 years, we'll have all of the ability and all the technology possible that we won't have to worry because we'll go and mine asteroids, we'll be going to space, we'll be doing other things, We'll learn how to micro-farm. We'll learn how to live more productive lives, happier lives. And so that we didn't need to worry and we didn't need to think about depopulation. So Herman Kahn kind of like switched his rhetoric at the end, but had really spent his life helping these horrendous people to create something that looks like it's going to be a technocratic nightmare for our children. <laughs> Yes, indeed. And what a great breakdown. You're just a wealth of information. So impressive that you're able to keep it all straight, the names and the dates. And not to jump too far ahead, but let me ask this. Why is Davos and Switzerland in general such a hub of global control? From what I can tell, there's over 40 different interlocking organizations and United Nations affiliates based there. The World Health Organization is based there. It's a hub for the World Trade Organization. Even CERN is there. It's kind of crazy, right? Definitely. And Klaus Schwab has connections to CERN as well. He has connections to a lot of these different organizations. To be honest, it gets a point where when you're setting up some form of globalist operation or globalist regime, you'd have to say a shadow government, then you've got to have a place where you base it. <laughs> and the mountains of a supposedly neutral, but we always know it's a bit crooked country, is the perfect place for a lot of Bond villain-like people 
to sit up on top of the hill. And I've said this in one of the articles. I really do think that's on purpose. That's to say, it's not for us. It's to, you know, a lot of the time they've spent throughout history, they spent trolling the people they see as the useless eaters, the, what, 99% of people. But the rest of them, the ones at the top, like to attract each other by showing off their wealth, showing off their power, and looking like Bond villains. Hmm. So I think that's why it's all based up there. Globalism, and they all like to look like Bond villains. Yeah, I believe it. And in terms of the Young Global Leaders Program, you talked about some of the names that were kind of of the last generation. Of course, Klaus Schwab has that famous clip where he straight up is saying Angela Merkel, Putin, the president of Argentina, Trudeau, yeah. and apparently half his cabinet too, yeah. Emmanuel Macron, people like Pete Buttigieg, and even Tulsi Gabbard have graduated from this program. And it's like, man, how do they get some of them they're they're breeding from the ground up but then they're also getting really powerful people on board and it's just like really impressive because you would think like this some people might be like i don't need that i've got enough connections but that's not how networking is done i guess at that level you want to be in all the clubs you want to have all the memberships you can mm -hmm. but i wanted to ask you about britain and really just what has happened recently this liz trust tenure Seems pretty strange. <laughs> she came in, implemented some economy crashing policies and resigned after 49 days. What are your thoughts on her and how she might fit in and your thoughts on this new guy they put in? Yeah, well, I'll have to start a little bit earlier because, I mean, one of the things that my articles look at, the third especially, is how the Young Global Leaders Project is really very similar template you could say to the international seminar and so i had to look at the young global leaders program and when it's first created when it's first envisioned that that's 1992 it doesn't run till 1993 so these things are created the year before davos runs in january so these things are ready to go already and the people are chosen who are going to be on board so the people selected for what was called the global leaders for tomorrow project were some of the biggest around and some of the people who were in power within four or five years. So in my country, when we're talking about this, and we'll get round to Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak very soon, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, both young global leaders, 1993, both would be in office by 1997. They knew that they would be in office. They knew that they would be the best potential for the future. They knew that and they knew that Tony Blair was really eager a lot of people called in politics, well, at least one or two were quoted. I can't remember who it was, but basically saying that Tony Blair was just like Bill Clinton, just without all the complexities and all the issues. You know, they saw Tony Blair as a clean version of this new style of politics that was coming in, this handsome guy who's going to sort out all your problems and connect with the people because they're like, I can relate to a guy who doesn't repulse me because that's basically what they were looking for by that time and the labor leadership you know they know it swings basically two-party politics what you have is you have the conservatives in power for a bit and then everybody gets fed up of them and labor get in and then everybody gets fed up of them and conservatives same in american democracy supposed democracy republicans and democrats we know how the system works they know how the system works they study the cycles very carefully to know when they're going to be in office, and they plan well ahead. 
And so there was a lot of planning. A lot of the people, like Yvette Cooper, who would come to fame during Tony Blair and Gordon Brown's tenure, she became a young global leader. She was working with the Clintons back in the early to mid-90s. And her husband, Ed Balls, would be Ed Miliband's Chancellor of the Exchequer when he was leader of the opposition and the Labour Party. MP, both young global leaders. I mean, the first young global leaders, global leaders of tomorrow program, included Angela Merkel, Nicholas Sarkozy, I think was in it. Bill Gates was there, Larry Summers, I believe, Edgar Bronfman. You know, these people were not only politicians, businessmen. Richard Branson was there. These were the elite of the elite. And I think what they had done was they had set up the young global leaders to be a lot like how the World Economic Forum started. If it starts with a bang, with a load of big names, and it proves itself, it's really easy to sell afterwards. It's really easy to say, oh, look how these influential people got involved in this. Well, this would be, we get these people in power, and we get the right people to come to the course, and we get them into power, and we can convince other powerful people who are likely to get into power to come and do our course as well. And then for years, that ran. I don't think it was as organized as what the Young Global Leaders Program is today. That was changed in 2004. And there's a reason why it was changed in 2004. In 2004, Klaus Schwab was given a grant by the Dan David Foundation. They said, for all of your hard work and for all of your clever ways and for bringing Nelson Mandela closer to the hearts of the people and all of the the wonderful things you've done for diplomacy, we're going to give you $1 million and you can do whatever you like with it. And he chose to create the Young Global Leaders Program with that $1 million. What most people don't know is that on the Dan David Foundation at that time was Henry Kissinger sitting on the board. That's why I called the last one the Kissinger Continuum, because really Kissinger helped Schwab fund the more industrial, modern version of the Young Global Leaders. And now what we see is it become industrial. So Originally, the international seminar with Henry Kissinger was 50 people. The Global Leaders for Tomorrow was about 200 to 250. And Young Global Leaders is just so many more. And you see what they get taught. I've recently done a series on my Fungi Monkey platform saying that basically showing that the type of training slides they show at Davos. I found it. Well, someone found the slides for me. A guy called Darren Kenton sent me the slides, found them on the Flickr account of the World Economic Forum. And they're so telling. They're so interested to see how these people are told what is right and what is wrong. And it all makes sense. It all makes sense. If you're someone who's looking for power, if you're someone who's looking for status, and that's the type of people who get into power, that's the type of people that these guys want to recruit. And then it means that the rest of us are just serving these guys. So, you know, we give people bonuses and benefits in our current system if they are sharks biting at the heels of anyone in front of them to bring them down so that they can get to the top of the pile. Mm -hmm. And we reward that behavior. So the people at the top of the pile are those type of people. Yeah. That will always remain the same as long as that system exists to reward really negative behavior. And what you see in the World Economic Forum is more than just 
people who at the first people like tony blair and the like who were chomping at the bit to get into power who were desperate to seize that power and be in control and think they're going to be in the history books and they will be in the history books maybe not the way they want to but they will be in the history books you get those guys but you also within if you study the young global leaders you get a lot of people who are linked with intelligence and i think really that that's birth of the world economic forum being through a cia conduit is because the forum itself is a way for intelligence agencies to mingle with the people in power people in business the people with some sort of ability to get them funding for their big projects they want to commit to people who they can ally with and what you see in britain is yeah politics have been sold out co-opted to young global leaders the only two that i couldn't find that were young global leaders in british politics over the past 20 odd years more than 20 years was theresa may michael howard and jeremy corbyn all too old to be young global leaders or global leaders for tomorrow but all were used in a different way than what the young you know theresa may was very much someone to take all of the flack and to do all of the things no one wanted to do and she survived much longer because they had purposely put someone who they could use as some sort of like hated symbol of the left jeremy corbyn basically he's a communist they you know they were going back to that sort of rhetoric while he was on the other side that was the best way for them to get a weak character into power say now keir starmer a completely weak character one of the weakest around someone who had the opportunity to investigate the jimmy savile case when he was a head of crown prosecutions and now claims that oh i had no say over any of that well it was one of the biggest cases around and you were the head of crown prosecution service it's just completely and utterly mental to think that he wasn't told about the jimmy savile case right he's a nasty i don't like him as a my family were lifelong labor supporters i was brought up with that way of thinking like I said earlier, I was into Corbyn at one point. So I, I despise that sort of politics that they represent. And I think people despise it. That's why they create the Trumps and the Corbyns, because they have to create these boogeymen who come along and scare the normies into voting for the normies, <laughs> because there's nothing like normies voting for normies to get normieism. Um, right. And then you could get anything done behind the scenes. These big, powerful people could do anything when weak people are in power and these are the weakest people and now so you've got Keir Starmer on the one side I'm not sure actually if he's a young global leader I'm, I'm definitely not sure about that he's bendable that's for sure but Liz Truss and Richie Sunak yeah I mean I was able to say what was going to happen in June July time when the Huston started so it would have been about July time you had all of the candidates out there and I already knew it would be Liz Truss for a small amount of time I mean I had followed politics in Britain quite a lot and you know that Liz Truss couldn't remain being an effective head of state for more than a few months. Insane to think she could. Uh, she was just awful. Everything she does is a calamity. And so even people like Adam and PR would have the hard time polishing that turd. You know, it's really, really, really difficult. Rishi Sunak, however, he's a banker's boy. And, you know, the time is coming. They're making way. They're making preparation for the CBDCs. They're about to start attacking crypto like you've never... You know, the battle was if Bitcoin wasn't the winner by now, then 
crypto is going to be in big trouble. So crypto is going to be in big trouble because mm. CBDCs, they're going to come in and ban trading and buying crypto over the next few years. 2023, you'll start to see the introduction of the laws. And for that, you need a Goldman Sachs guy and you need a guy who represents the ethics and morality of the same people who inhabit the hallways of the World Economic Forum every January in Davos. Yikes. Yikes. Well, man, this has been really great, super informative. I'm glad we got to talk about your awesome work so far. I really appreciate what you've been doing. Let's leave the people with your links and how to follow up on the irons you have in the fire and anything else you're going to be working on next. Yeah, cool, cool. Well, thanks for having me on. It's amazing to have a, a chat like this. And I mean, that was a lot of information, but I think we managed it quite well. Yeah. My most recent piece has been a piece on Jeff Bezos. Uh, that's on UK Column about the rise of Jeff Bezos, another fake rise. You can find my work on johnnyvedmo.com. You can find it on fungimonkey.com. That's a lot of my media stuff. I write for Unlimited Hangout. I've got a couple of good articles coming out for that platform soon. And, you know, if you can support me, support me, because life is always tough for everybody. And this work does not pay well, I can promise you. <laughs> People don't want to pay you for this. So if I can get any support, that's good. But other than that, you know, this is all about, like we say, we, we, the only way to be progressive, the only way to come out good at the end of this is to wake people up slowly to what's going on around them. And then suddenly it'll all happen, whether you like it or not. Change will come. And that's the only way out of it for us. For them, it's domination all of the way. So you're either on one side or the other. And I hope all of the guys who are listening to this are open-eyed and understand their enemy and understand that the only way to defeat them is to work against what they want. And so I'd leave you with that. Mm. Here, here. A big cheers to that. It's certainly been a pleasure. Thanks for doing the work you do. Keep fighting the good fight, man. Woo. Thanks, man. And boom goes the dynamite. A fresh way to look at the supervillain from Switzerland and his political puppet pipeline. Johnny did a great job. I'm not surprised. Unlimited Hangout really likes to keep the quality high. And I will say that ever since COVID happened, I'm aware that there have been a lot of episodes that are just guests from the past who wanted to return to give their take, and the takes do largely sound the same, and that's just the nature of an operation that huge, right? Authors and researchers warned about a big play for the New World Order, and when it happens, yes, a lot of people want to come back because things have gotten so crazy. And we can roll the World Economic Forum and Agenda 30 up in all that because it's kind of like COVID was the shooting of the starter pistol that put us into this continuum that ends with all the Agenda 2030 goals being fulfilled and all of us living in tiny, smart apartment prisons, doing remote work through the metaverse, getting paid in Klaus coin and door dashing cricket gruel. And this agenda, this big transhumanist digital prison play, is really the only game in Conspiracy Town. Whether it is the guests of the past that now want a chance to comment on things as they've heated up, or new guests whose work history I've really liked but never got a chance to get them on, for the most part, it seems like everyone's latest work and newest books are about this current thing. And I know it's a big, soul-crushing snowball headed right for us, but 2030 is a long time away. 
And I got to keep this show fresh for five episodes a month and keep the interviews from all starting to sound the same, you know? We've done some solution shows that I think have been a creative way to do that. Hey, we know the world is going this way. We don't need to talk it to death, but assuming it does go this way, what's a good pivot for the people listening? Homesteading, growing your own food, shaking your local rancher's hand, de-digitizing your life, all that stuff. But today's episode was another attempt at coming at this material a little differently because I don't hear a lot of deep dives on Klaus's history or the history of the World Economic Forum. I also liked that we could have a less American-centric view at things, a more European perspective, because I know we have a lot of listeners there, and sometimes I'm sure it sounds a little like THC is a show by an American for Americans. Not that it's meant to, it just happens. We talk about what we know. So a not-so-American look at things was good. Many researchers say these agendas are going to hit the EU harder anyway. Even right now, we're hearing about the winter, energy shortages, etc., etc., so it's overdue to look at things from that side of the pond. It's funny that this was also going to be my big FTX blowout, and then we didn't even get into it until an hour in, and then, now it's not even that big of a deal, because everyone's been talking about it. More has come out, including Whitney Webb's work that he mentioned. I'm pretty sure I saw her release at least one piece on this. But still, not a lot of people talking about the guy from MakerDAO, so that you might not have heard. Two other crypto guys died recently, too. I think one in his sleep and one in a helicopter crash. An odd trend seems to be happening here. Maybe like the holistic doctor deaths a few years before the pandemic, but who am I to say? Now let me throw another log on the story of the MakerDAO guy here, though. Sorry, free listeners, you're not going to have a lot of context, but what do you need to know? The long story short is that the founder of MakerDAO's last tweet was, CIA and Mossad and pedo elite are running some kind of sex trafficking entrapment blackmail ring out of Puerto Rico and Caribbean islands. They're going to frame me with a laptop planted by my ex-girlfriend who was a spy. They will torture me to death. And then three days later, he washed up dead on the shore. Now, when I was looking more into the story, I saw an article mention Pierce Brock. And yeah, I already knew Brock was big in crypto, but if the name doesn't ring a bell, he's been talked about a good amount in the Hollywood child abuse shows because allegedly being a child actor himself in Mighty Ducks and the classic First Kid with Sinbad, some researchers say he's made comments about being abused, or it's heavily speculated that he was abused, and even further speculation is that he's now an abuser in circles with Brian Singer, throwing big mansion parties that get wilder and wilder later and later into the night. All hearsay, rumors, and speculation, of course, but that is why you might know the name Brock Pierce from previous THC episodes or the documentary An Open Secret. I know he's in there, but it's been so long I can't remember the context, and this isn't territory where one should misspeak, so let's just move on. But here is an article from the New York Post by Mary Jacob about the Maker Dow founder's death. Well, it's actually about a look inside his home, as if that's the most important thing, but regardless, 
it says later on in the article that Brock Pierce, the Mighty Ducks child star turned cryptocurrency billionaire who pioneered the mass move of cryptocurrency czars to Puerto Rico when he located there in 2017, knew Nikolai Mushigan. Pierce told the Post, Mushigan's death was a tragedy that may never be solved. Quote, his mother clarified that his death had nothing to do with his conspiracy tweets. He was a beautiful man and a child at heart. He was also an incredible visionary. I don't call people brilliant very often, but Nikolai was brilliant. And brilliant people sometimes walk the edge of insanity. Nikolai was working towards an incorruptible world, and he wanted there to be a separation of banking and the state, just as there's a separation of church and state. He felt the world would be better off if central banks couldn't print money and finance wars. San Juan police told the Post that Mushigan's death is still under investigation, but is not considered a homicide at present. Pierce added, intelligence agencies are not hunting down crypto pioneers. If the government were knocking off people in this field, I would know. Now, isn't that an interesting article? Nikolai tweets this thing about an organized child abuse ring in the Bahamas. And then in the wake of his death, the New York Post interviews the one guy I know of who's accused of unsavory things in that area that also actually has a foot in the crypto world. And what does he say to the New York Post? Well, the guy was brilliant, but also maybe crazy, and there is no truth to the rumors. Look, his mom even confirmed his death and the tweets are unrelated. Nothing to see here. And my question is, how did his mom confirm it? Maybe she did, but if I drowned in the ocean, my mom would have no inside story unless she was actually there. And if she was there, then the death isn't all that mysterious, because someone was present. And then he says... Intelligence agencies are not hunting down crypto pioneers. If the government were knocking off people in this field, I would know. Which just sounds like damage control. I just don't like this story at all. And I haven't read Whitney's thing that she put out about FTX yet. There's a good chance she might talk about this same thing, and I hope she does. But man, that really struck me as suspicious. Anyway... <laughs> We talked about Nikolai's death and the FTX scandal in the Plus Show, since they are a World Economic Forum partner, or were, and we also got into Cyber Polygon, how the WEF's plans will roll out from here, what people can do to make it harder on the World Economic Forum to succeed, how Johnny plans to guard his family in the next few years, we went deeper on Edelman PR, and... Johnny's investigation into Klaus's wife and their children, and a little bit about returning to Cold War rhetoric and the cabal potentially being out of ideas, so they're dusting off the old playbook. So I thought this was a good episode. Lots of interesting content. The extra hour is just as good. Maybe it's a fine time to sign up for Plus and start the seven-day free trial and hear the whole damn show from now on, huh? But that said, let's check out the events calendar at HiresideMeetups.com. Anyone can add an event and find the other local THC fans anytime you want, anywhere you want, and it's free. For the rest of December, we have December 11th, Asheville, North Carolina. December 17th, Fayetteville, New York. December 17th, also Cleveland, Ohio. And the rest are in January. 
But hop on there anytime you want. If you are interested in making new friends based on your mutual love of THC, and I'm sure all your wildest dreams will come true. And that does it. Really happy with this one. Glad I got to talk to Johnny. He's a good dude. We seem to have similar vibes, and I appreciate his work a lot. Pop over and let him know if you appreciate this interview, and I will see you next time. I've done my part. Your move, Klaus and Company, WEF Puppets, and Agenda 2030 Implementers. Your fucking move. Have a drink and a smoke. Listen to the cast. We shine a shiny spotlight. Put criminals on blast. The pinstripe men of mourning. And families of finance. DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild The kids don't stand a chance The kids don't The kids don't stand The kids don't stand a chance I said the kids don't The kids don't stand The kids don't stand a chance We're looking for the answer To questions never asked so we come to the Carwood for the higher side chats. The pinstripe men of mourning and families of finance. DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild. The kids don't stand a chance. The kids don't. The kids don't stand. The kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't. The kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. Involved in shady business, we try to get a glance. We're working on the numbers. Resistance must advance. The pinstripe men of mourning and families of finance. DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild. The kids don't stand a chance. The kids don't. The kids don't stand. The kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't. The kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. The kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. And that is another show complete. Remember, as much as you enjoyed this, which is just the free first hour, I hope you'll become a plus member to hear the full two hour interviews. You also can engage with other Plus members in the comments and the forums. And you'll find your answer to one of the most common questions I get, which is where can I find those cover songs that you use at the end of the show? Well, they are free downloads for Plus members too. And without Plus members, I can't hire the occasional musician to bring these odd cover song ideas to fruition. Plus members are how I'm able to do what I do without ads and without the big machine being on my back. We can fit so much more into a two-hour interview, and I do my best to make it worth your time and money. The conversation only gets deeper, weirder, and more controversial in that private hour. How could it not the way things are going? 
But the best way to sign up is at thehiresidechats.com where new first time subscribers always get a free seven day trial because I'm just that confident. There's no PayPal on the website, but if you need to use PayPal, then sign up through Patreon and you get all the same episodes. Our website is a credit or debit system, but you can also scope out the other options like a few various cryptos, cash or check mailed to the PO box. And I'll even barter with most people if you have your own business and produce something nice that my wife or kid or taste buds might like. But the architects of consensus reality have made it clear that these themes and topics aren't really welcome on the main stage. And so this is how we secure a little counterculture corner for ourselves. And I hope you'll join plus because that is the only way it works. Besides, you can cancel anytime right on your profile page. The most common concern I hear is people just being unsure if THC Plus will work with their podcast app, and the answer is probably yes. But if not, we have several high-level app recommendations for whatever phone you use, and the website is made for mobile too. We're trained to tip a waitress for bringing us a sandwich, but that tip doesn't give you access to a second sandwich. Really, I'm not asking for any more than that, and I think I offer a better service. Come get your second serving of tasty conspiracy goodness in exchange for that small token of your appreciation. Beyond that, let it also be known that we have grown and survived as long as we have by word of mouth. I don't care so much about social media likes or follows, but tell the right people about THC. And not just listeners, but the high-level figures who are better suited to sit down with me than most other hosts. And if you can help me with any of these things, I can work to bring you better shows, which is just a win-win for both of us. Informative, entertaining, and action-packed. It also never hurts to thank a guest you liked if you have the time either. We want them to know people are listening, so they're willing to come back down the road too. Thank you for spending some time with me, and cheers to a better tomorrow.